This is a good drink. I like this place. I like it too. Mario, let me get another one. Well, jeez Louise, you guys each had enough. Hey guys, don't you guys look nice? Now your fools wanna show off. She's talking to me. No, dummy, she's talking to me. You wanna see me outside? I see you now. They're fighting over me. Hey, you guys need to break it up. You're wrecking my place. Hey, Sergeant Berrasefa, I need your head now. Welp, I got a few pics of them. I'm out. <gasps> you foes knocked each other out. A Megan, don't you live? Looks like we're right on time again. I don't understand why you guys are fighting. I just saw Megan leaving. Was it for that? It's because she liked my profile picture. We're connected. Insta-talk. Sounds like she played both of you. Isn't that right, Kraken? <laughs> Sergeant the Biss safe. Captain Chaos, you guys saved the day again. You guys are the true heroes. Thank you, Mario. We appreciate it. Once again, these two are going back to jail. Part of their punishment is they're going to have to pay for all of these damages. Uh. And that's your tip of the day to get you on your way. Welcome to Black and Blue, the podcast that's just for you. We bring solutions to everyday problems. We are here to humanize the badge. By interviewing first responders and discussing their trainings, experiences, and publications. Black and Blue airs weekly at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tune in.
start the show. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Black and Blue. I am your host. I am Coach Clay. I'm your motivational speaker, your empowerment coach, your author, and your favorite baker's favorite baker. And this is Black and Blue. This is the podcast where we have interviews with first responders or law enforcement officials who are either rookie, season, or retirees. And we discuss their trainings, experiences, and publications. We go live at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time weekly. And today, you know, we kind of had a mishap due to scheduling. That wasn't my fault and wasn't the guest fault. So I decided to put this together for you for today. Since we were supposed to go live with an interview, we're going to go live with highlights and recaps, okay? And we're going to... We, went through the rolodex of black and blue and i so if you didn't make the cut i'm sorry you'll make the next one but i picked out just a couple moments of individual guests from the birth of this platform till uh current and discuss topics that we normally discuss on this platform all right but like i said we go live weekly we're streaming on five different platforms we're on two on youtube we're on two on um i'm Yes, two on YouTube, two on Facebook, and one on LinkedIn, either under Black and Blue, Coach Clee, or Clee Tillman. Make sure you check them out, subscribe to them, hit that like button, and share this information all the way around. We're going to have a lot of fun on this platform. This one is pre-recorded, which I don't normally do, so therefore we're going to go get right to all of it and, and make sure we have fun while we're doing it. This platform is sponsored by One Way Publishing. One Way Publishing is also where if you want to do a voiceover for Sergeant Be Safe, they sponsor Sergeant Be Safe. Email them, website, hit the website, let them know. If you want to be a guest on the show, make sure you hit that website and fill out the paperwork, and you'll, you too can be a guest on the show as well, all right? But we got a nice lineup. October's been a great month for us. We've had a, a good lineup. We still have more to come, okay? And because of the rescheduling, we were supposed to go live with Ernie Stevens today, and that's not going to happen. We're going to go live with him next week, so tune in to that. Uh, it's going to be a back-to-back header, a double header on all next week. And then also, I will be going out of town. I'll be traveling to Michael Laidler's conference. So we're actually going to have a snippet of him. So be on the lookout for that. But so far, we've had Travis Yates, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Travis Yates, in his book, The Courageous Police Leader. Can you see that? Yes. And we had him on the show. Got my autograph copy. You guys make sure you guys get yours. We've also had Scott Medlin on the show, 101 Health Tips for Police Officers. In his book, and we'll feature these books later in the um, in the month as well, like I normally do. Uh, and then up and coming, you have Chad Michael Bruckner in his book, The Holy Trinity of Success in Healthy Police Organizations. Right now, currently still in the middle of that one. And not to forget, like I said, Ernie Stevens, his book that he did with uh, uh, Nick Rogerio. Let me get this up here on the screen. And here it is. And take a look at that. Mental health and de-escalation, a guide for law enforcement professionals. And so we had and will be having those gentlemen on the show for Black and Blue. And it's been a tremendous experience getting to know them, getting to see their work and seeing the work that they're doing out here. But let's take a leap back. We're going to jump right back from some of the early ones. So don't don't make fun of the background, but some of the early uh, individuals who've been on the show for Black and Blue up until currently. And first and foremost, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're going to bring Dr. Francia Donier uh, to the stage and her discussion on giving back.
Stand by. All right, and we are here with Dr. Francia Donier and giving back. Here she is. So articulation is a beautiful thing. Um, before, you just, it, it, when you start this career, you may not be as articulate and you kind of get frustrated with the person who's already frustrated. It's like two, two balls coming at each other. But once you learn how to, uh, for lack of a better term, start to steer, corral the ball and you can get it back in the stable and you can articulate yourself in a situation a lot better. And it makes a smoother transition on both sides. Exactly. And I would like to point out that women happen to be good communicators, which is why we need more women in law enforcement, because uh, women have that gift. Uh, I would say, you know, of course I'm biased because I'm a woman in law enforcement and I feel that that is valuable and that that's something women can do. But there are studies that do show that, you know, women are, are more empathetic and they're able to, to listen and, and kind of understand uh, perspectives in a way that's unique. So. Uh, absolutely. I, I think communication is at the core of everything, mm -hmm. right? And and uh, there's all types of communications and communication skills that you need, you know, from writing a report to how you talk to people to listening, right? And all, mm -hmm. all that goes with communicating. Absolutely. And you also mentioned on uh, leadership skills. Leadership skills. Is that um, a course that you talk as you were an uh, adjunct professor at uh, any of the local colleges? Yeah, so I teach organizational leadership mm -hmm. in a project management course, and I also teach a leadership theory and leadership applications um, and strategic planning for criminal justice professors. I mean, for criminal justice professionals. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, le leadership is is highly needed, and it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in a law enforcement position should be in a leadership position, mm -hmm. but understanding how leadership works. I think is is beneficial so you know it can help with career progression of course to mm -hmm. give people uh where they should be but um it's also something that's worthy of just having a good tool in your toolbox mm. exactly and so i know so not only are, are you a, a professor i know you um actually wrote some policies uh, um, done, read up on, um, so done some research on policies and speak a couple languages. What, what all have you brought to the table throughout the course of your career that you would like to uh, impart with us? Oh boy, um, <laughs> I, I would say a lot. You know, I, I, I'm not very shy about speaking my mind, and you know, I, I can't say that it's all been positive mm -hmm. in terms of me expressing what I felt was right and what needed to be done. Um, I've been persistent in my uh, endeavors to try to make change through policy, right, and through research and my education. Mm -hmm. So those are things that people can't take away from me. And, you know, even though sometimes I felt minimized and sometimes um, like I was not heard or like uh, concerns that I brought up weren't really addressed, I continued on. And, you know, I thought about all those people that I, I feel like I've helped over the years in, in uh, being a police officer. And they're the reason why I continued on because if it wasn't for someone like me, you know, that they could relate to, mm -hmm. uh, I, I wouldn't, it, it wouldn't have made me keep going, right? It, it was about helping those people that couldn't help themselves and being that voice for those that couldn't speak up for themselves. So I've, I felt, you know, my, of course, again, I'm biased. I feel like I brought a lot to the table 
and I continue to do so, you know, every day, you know, one, one thing that I ask folks that I work with is what can I do to make your life easier as a police officer? What can I do to help improve things? So it's better, whether that's changing. And there's a clip of that. Make sure you guys check out the channel black and blue, uh, for the full video. It's also on Spotify. Uh, there's been, that's one of the earlier ones. Uh, that's someone, uh, individual who I used to work with, uh, has gone off and done other things in other States and rose that climbed the ranks through there. Uh, and had a tr having a tremendous career. So make sure you guys follow up. But we're going to move on to another New York City uh, police officer, another administrator. Uh, he discusses at that time, he was the president of the New York chapter of Noble, uh, the national um, the national organization of black law enforcement executives. I almost messed that up there. And his name's Ramel Lee. And he, had, he gave a tremendous performance here on the show, gave uh, good information. And here is his clip now that we had back then i was able to at least navigate myself through and kind of kind of feel my way through until i became a little bit more seasoned no yeah definitely definitely so you're the you're the president of noble how long did you say you were the president of noble um the president of new york chapter i don't I, you know i don't i don't want to ruffle the, the, the national chapter the national right. president's feathers i'm sorry <laughs> just, no, that's fine uh, well, I got sworn in uh, January 2021, so okay. I've been doing it uh, a, almost a year and a half now. Okay. How gratifying is that for you, at least um, to, to actually be a part of uh, an organization where you get to help out other officers? Well, when I first joined Noble um, and I went to my first chapter meeting, I walked in the room and I seen all these black law enforcement executives. It was a room full. Uh -huh. I, I didn't even know there were that many in the city, let alone part of like one organization. And I fell in love with the mission immediately. Noble prides itself on being the conscience of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And their motto is justice by action. Okay. And, and their mission is to ensure uh, procedural justice throughout all communities. And uh, being a person of color and in law enforcement, you see how policy sometimes leads to the communities of color not being policed the same. Mm -hmm. And Noble's mission is to change that, um, okay. to make sure everyone's given the same respect regardless of zip code. So yeah, I fell in love with the mission right away. And for, you know, police leadership throughout uh, New York to, to look at me and make me the the steward um, of the chapter for for the time being that I am, I, I I'm just honored. Just uh, there's there's nothing more I can say. It, it, it's an honor to think to 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 think that they would think that that highly of me. So I just I just feel honored. I take uh, me being um, the steward of the of the chapter very seriously. It's it's part activism as far as uh, fulfilling our mission, but it's also you know running an organization there's uh constitution bylaws finances or fundraising all those things also involved so um mm -hmm. it's definitely a full plate but uh i'm, I'm enjoying the meal <laughs> i like that good good so uh noble like you stated before uh, uh stands for national organization of black law enforcement executives um how would a person uh, who knows nothing about Noble at all, uh, they, they want to apply to gain access into the organization itself? 
Well, no, uh, it's a, it's a national organization with lo uh, local chapters. So, uh, I, national, and I can I definitely know New York, but I can assure you, almost all chapters have web have a website. Okay. Um, you can go on the national website, which is noblenatl.org, mm -hmm. and you can find like the your your local chapter. But it gives you a, a history of the organization. Uh, it also gives you options to join. You don't necessarily you don't have to be a black law enforcement executive to join Noble. Uh, you can be of uh, any ethnicity to join. That's mm -hmm. number one. Uh, okay. Just gotta, you know, believe in the mission. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't have to be an executive. We have uh, we call associate members, people who are just under the executive level that mm -hmm. are looking to either support the executives in their mission or looking to one day become an executive themselves. Okay. And there's also a uh, supporting member uh, level where you don't have to be in law enforcement at all. Mm. And some some chapters have collegiate chapters. So okay. for people there in college that are studying in, in the field of criminal justice, they can also join. So so there's there's room for everyone. And 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 if uh, you don't want to do anything, you can always be a sponsor and, and uh, help us out. Gotcha, gotcha. Yes, that that it does help the boat and get down the stream a little bit. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, and there you have that. That was an interesting uh, interview. I got to uh, actually meet him. He uh, invited me up to New York. I uh, got to sit down at a nice restaurant, and we got to have a face to face and a great conversation before that interview took place. So make sure you guys check out that interview. Make sure if you're interested in Noble, reach out, especially if you're in the New York area, or if you just have any questions, watch the full interview, check him out. Next, we're going to move on to Burt Walker. Burt Walker, I actually met him on a fishing trip, and it was with uh, it was my with my family, deep sea fishing, and we didn't even know that we were in the same field. We didn't know that we were both in law enforcement until after the trip was over, and I started talking to my uncle, and then I reached out to him, and then uh, we we struck up a conversation, and he provided a great respect uh, perspective uh, on the issues that he discussed during his interview, and here's a clip of it now. Where Charlotte, Mecklen where Charlotte is in Mecklenburg, mm -hmm. we're the richest counties. And starting out, you're gonna make about forty-five thousand dollars a year. Okay. So at four fifty-nine a gallon, <laughs> and about eighteen hundred dollars a month for rent for an apartment that's the size of this cell phone, how many people are you going to get to come do that and work exactly. a twelve-hour, tw a twelve-hour rotating shift? We work four on four off rotating shift, two weeks of days, two weeks of nights, holidays, Christmas, you know, all the yeah. days. And right now we don't have no money for budget, so guess what you don't get paid for? No holidays, none of that stuff. You don't get no money for that. You just showed up and everybody says thank you. Yep. So how do I sell that to somebody in North Carolina is different how I sell it to, for you. Our retirement is 30 years. What's your retirement, Clay? 25. 25 years. And again, I got to sell that to somebody that you got to be here for 30 years. With leave time, if you don't take leave, you got sick time, you probably get here in 28, mm -hmm. 27, sell it back, and, and you'll be good. But I don't know how to sell that to somebody if they believe, if they believe solely what people are saying negatively about law enforcement. Mm -hmm. and if I got to sell them that, are there cops that need to go? Yeah, yeah. Yep. There's not a profession on the planet that somebody don't need to go. Mm -hmm. There's not a profession. There, I mean, there's teachers, priests, We've seen it all, right? Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't matter what profession you are. As they told us in the Marine Corps, 10% ain't worth nothing. We are, they always call them the 10%ers. 10% ain't worth nothing. <laughs> and you're going to have police officers that blacken the eye of everybody's. Mm-hmm. So how do I how do I sell to a young black man that's 21, 22 that he can change what happened in Minneapolis? Mm-hmm. You can you can not guarantee it, but you can do your best and put your soul on the line that mm-hmm. that mess won't happen again. How do I how do I tell him that in a environment where you usually have a bunch of people around? It's kind of mm-hmm. hard. But sit if I sit down one to one with you, I'll be real with you. And what I've seen people do, I've seen dirty cops, mm-hmm. and I, I've seen the thin blue line be nothing but the farce that I know it is. You know it, and I know it, Cleese. That's a farce. Mm-hmm. We're humans that have a job. Mm-hmm. We're humans that have a job, and we're supposed to be making it better for everybody. And if I can sell it to them that as a young black man, you can make it better for your community, but then everybody's community, because you got to deal with white people, Asian people, Hispanic mm-hmm. people, people that ain't from here, and gay, trans, whatever. So you're going to have to be universal in your thinking, number one. There mm-hmm. is no like way heavy over here. You can yeah. disagree with somebody's sexuality, but you're going to have to still give them the same service. Give them fair treatment. Yep. Fair treatment. Believe. One, you have to go in and tell them the truth of what the job is. One with you, I'll be real with you. And what I've seen people do, I've seen dirty cops. And mm-hmm. I, I've seen the thin blue line be nothing but the farce that I know it is. You know it, and I know it, Cleese. That's a farce. Mm-hmm. We're, we're humans that have a job. Mm-hmm. We're humans that have a job, and we're supposed to be making it better. I'm explaining them that justice has to be universal still when you come here, even if you don't like them. Mm-hmm. They, they're white and you don't like them, and they didn't break the law. You can't stay there and hold the heavy hand on them because right. they called you some names. Let me interject here. I got a couple comments and a couple questions up here. Uh, shout out to Mayor Green. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Ain't got nothing to do with law enforcement, just being used. Tell me. Okay, let me talk to so and so. I'm going to get these counselors to your house. So mm-hmm. I think that's it, too. And being effective. He just made a comment now. Mayor Green just made a comment. Communication breaks down barriers and helps people get through their implicit biases. Communication yeah. is the key. I, I, I remember I, one, one, one of my veteran um, uh, uh, officers that since uh, retired on, uh, he, he said something to me as a younger officer when I was with the former department, actually, uh, that I didn't understand at the time, but I grew to understand, which is he said, when you become a police officer, you become a used car salesman. You know, you, you, you got to make the situation sound better than what it is. Not that you're trying to sell somebody a clunker because a car could be in decent shape, but it's not a brand new car. But you still right. got to get it off the lot. Basically, he said, you got to learn how to talk to people. And once you learn how to talk to people and you, yeah. you can find out how to how to get, get them in their head and emotionally, that's where you make the difference. And I, I've learned that through communication is the key. I mean, you wanted to be Batman too. You wanted to beat him out. You wanted to arrest everybody. Then you found yeah. out. Listen, you can. If I can get through to you and have a conversation, that's way more. That's generationally effective. Yes, and uh, like Mr. Green was saying, that if everybody could accept that you got some kind of bias, if you got a, you have a bias. You do mm-hmm. and accept it. Know that when you go to a certain call, that is, it's in here. It may not come out initially, but somewhere in there, it does It does affect you. Mm-hmm. It does affect you, and you have to sit there and communicate with each other and yourself. You got to be truthful with yourself on how you looked at situations and 
seeing how you're going to deal with it. And like you said, once you get in there and you realize that no, I don't care what anybody's done criminally, they're still mm-hmm. humans. Because mm-hmm. people, I don't know, Cleve, if you've had people ask, how do you sit there and talk to a rapist? How you, he sat there and he did this to a child. It's like, he's still a man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know what you want to call him. You want to call him a monster and all this, mm-hmm. but he's not. He's a human being did something monstrous. Mm-hmm. So I still got to sit down and interview him. I still got to sit down and talk to him like he's a man with Fourth Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. Now, people don't like that. Mm-hmm. Time, it's like, I still got to sit down there and understand he or she has rights no matter what they did to whoever, even our school shootings, the, the knucklehead that did what he did, lived, you still got to sit there and talk to him with his rights, thinking about mental health, thinking about Fourth Amendment, mm-hmm. thinking about Fifth Amendment, thinking about Sixth Amendment. You got to sit there and put all their Eighth Amendment. You're throwing all these things in there as you speak to him, and you can't focus on the crime because you start getting biased. And if you got children and you arrest a child molester, I got a child, you got children, you arrest a child molester, you have to do this. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Yeah, it's necessary. Yep. And that was an interview with Burke Walker. Like I said, I met him on a fishing trip and he talked about uh, uh, biasness and recruitment in, in his video. And he skipped ahead a couple times and then kind of went ahead. Uh, but that's OK. Make sure you check out the full video on the platform, Black and Blue, or the clip as well. Uh, he had a great interview as well. And I'm going to now moving on to a guy who I, I, I actually had the pleasure of working with, but he worked for a different department. Uh, he's now retired. He's doing something else. He's living the dream. There is life after retirement. But uh, Darren Cotton, and he's also he was also with EAP. He's a peer assistance uh, um, a per- personnel, and he did a lot of great things. And when he came on the platform, he dropped a lot of uh, jewels and nuggets too. And here's his he, he when he was on here, he talked about National Night Out. He talked about uh, the academy, how it was and how it is then, uh, how it was and how it is now. Sorry. And he also talks about recruitment and things uh, that are hindrance for recruitments for agencies and things that he believes can make uh, positive changes. Uh, and, and I know uh, a lot of people who are on here know you, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in North Carolina. I went to a, uh, a little small town called Goldston, right in the central part of the state. Um, Right after high school, um, I uh, went into the Air Force, served seven years in the Air Force. I was stationed out in Texas, went to spend a year in Korea, and then I finished up my last four years at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. And in the Air Force, I was a security policeman, and you know, I got out and went back home to Sanford <clears throat> and worked there for four years. Ended up on the community policing unit there uh, my last couple of years there, which I enjoyed. I love being out in the community, especially being with the kids talking trash, playing ball with them, you know, trying to, yeah, I split a couple of pair of pants out there with the kids trying to, trying to do some moves. And uh-huh. then, uh, then I ended up here at, at Derry Township. I've been blessed uh, 24 years here and uh, about another year to go. And then hopefully I'm going uh, to sail off into the sunset and retire. There you go. That sounds like a- Sanford, for instance, I was on the community police unit there. And what we did there was each neighborhood had their own so that you actually get to know your neighbors. Because you know as well as I do, I've gone to calls before, you know, someone has an open door and you go to the neighbor like, hey, you know, what's your neighbor's name? You know where they work? And they're like, I don't know. I don't know nothing about them. Like, how can you live next door to somebody and not know them? So that's part of what National Night is. Get out, know your community, get to learn. You get to learn the police officers. A lot of police officers will be there. Um, Politicians always going to be, especially if it's an election year, politicians are going to be there. 
Um, but it's, it's mainly uh, community coming together, everybody getting to know each other, know what resources are there and available for you. Yep, absolutely. Each department does it differently. Um, I think believe, all, all the main local departments, at least in this area, uh, have something going on uh, yeah. at various locations within their, their jurisdiction. Uh, I know it's a national thing. Down at Sanford, I got on it eventually after I worked a couple of years in patrol. I, I think we should definitely be out in the community more. And also at that time, when I when I came on the job, and even up uh, probably to the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of departments would send you through the academy if you didn't have Act 120 or your right. certification. Um, I know myself, 25 years old, had twins, married. If they asked, if they would have said, hey, you got to go to the academy. Back then, academy is only like two and a half months. If they would have said, hey, you got to quit work and go to the academy, and then come back and you got a job. I couldn't, I couldn't afford it. And then in the early 2000s, they went to where a lot of departments were trying to at least have a two-year degree and some a four-year degree. But we missed out on a whole lot of qualified people because they were in situations like me. I had kids young, got married young, and kids young. I couldn't afford it. If I wasn't given that opportunity, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. Right. So I think... So they went to that stage and then they started doing the old, well, you got to have your 120 or we're not even going to look at you. Yeah. That's around the time I came through. It's And it's one of those where life happens mm-hmm. and, you know, everyone isn't born with a, with a silver spoon in their mouth. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you see people that have, that show interest in being mm-hmm. like, Hey, I'd love to get into it, but I, I can't, you know, I can't afford it. I can, you know, this or whatever. And then right now, everybody is just hurting for manpower. Yeah. Oh, wait. like social media, and the media has hurt a lot of professions. I'm not just going to say law enforcement. Mm-hmm. They've hurt a lot of professions. Mm-hmm. You know, because anybody can get behind a keyboard and type anything mm-hmm. instead of you know face to face. You you know you can respond. You can tell the inflection in their voice if they're being spiteful and mean about it. Or are they just kind of like voicing a concern? I think we miss a lot of that face-to-face time. And, and I definitely have noticed a, a, a difference in the people that are coming on the job now. A lot of them don't have the skills that we had. You know, and I always tell everyone, I hate to sound like my parents, because you know, you know, when you were young, they were like, look, you guys are nothing like we had. We had to walk to uh, uphill both ways, barefoot in the snow <laughs> school every day. Uh, Kevin Holland here with, uh need to get out and build relationship with middle school and high schools, uh, get them interested in our profession at an early age. Also need uh, needing college credit does hurt recruiting numbers. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah it definitely does. Like I said, <clears throat> and I think a lot a lot of departments are starting to back away from that now. Mm-hmm. Um, the college requirement, I think they're starting to back away. And like you said, definitely, you know, getting in. Um, our school resource offices, and we have one, it's a good one, and we've, and, and the previous and the one we retired, they've always been very interactive with the students as well. Um, and that and that plays a big part. You know, sometimes there was an old saying years ago, you know, you just kind of throw somebody in the school to someone that ain't, ain't worth being out on the street anymore, you know, kind of hide them, you know. Um, but I think knowing that the departments, at least here in central Pennsylvania, a lot of the ones that are in the schools are very qualified and they're interactive with the kids. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it may change some of their minds to become, to get into law enforcement. So when, you know, I'm not the greatest thing ever. I'm not here to say that. But sometimes mm-hmm. when, you, uh, when you can relate to people and provide resources for people, 
that's how I want to make a difference in everyone's life. Everyone I come in contact with them, whether it's just a greeting, hello, how you doing today? You never know what someone's going through every day. A simple hello, you know, have a nice day, holding the door for somebody, that can make someone's day. Right. Be a game changer. Yeah. So, you know, I, I every day I try to do something productive and, and, and be nice to people. Mm-hmm. Try to. <laughs> I, I don't even <laughs> put it like that. Well, yeah, you got to make the attempt. There it is. Positive words from from Darren Cotton. Make sure you guys check that out. I had a lot of fun interviewing him, and he um, watches and maintains the show often. But right now, we're going to cut ahead, uh, starting to be safe to a, a commercial here. So I hope you enjoy. Stand by. Captain Chaos, did you mess up another report again? Sorry, Sergeant B-Safe. I'll try to be more, uh, careful. What in the world was that? Whoa, look out the window, Captain Chaos. There's a real live superhero. We have to meet them, Sergeant B-Safe. Let's go. There's Supercrime Buster to the rescue. Hey, there's Super Crime Buster! Woohoo! Hey, you're the greatest Super Crime Buster. Yeah, we know Super Crime Buster's out there. We're actually on the way, but we keep getting phone calls. Excuse me, Super Crime Buster. I'm Sergeant B Safe, and this is my partner, Captain Chaos. We'd like to thank you for your incredible bravery. Yeah, you're amazing. We're big fans. Wait. You are the police officers, but not the superheroes? No, we're just ordinary officers doing our duty. But we may not have superpowers, but we're heroes in our own way. You're right! The heroes don't always wear capes or possess superhuman abilities. It's the everyday heroes like you who make a difference. Thank you, Super Crime Buster, for that reminder. You are absolutely 100% correct. To all the first responders and law enforcement officers, take it from me and Captain Chaos. We applaud you. We know you do a thankless job and are highly needed. You are a superhero in your own right. Keep up the good work in these perilous times because you are needed. Wouldn't you agree, Kraken? And that's your tip of the day to get you on your way. And we are back. I hope you enjoyed that cartoon by Sergeant B. Safe. Those first set of videos were in the early stages of Black and Blue. You can kind of see, you know, my head's big. I'm getting picture quality is not the greatest. But the interviews are dynamic. And the information shared is something that, that you want to take a hold of. These next set of videos are kind of in the middle of the transitioning point of black and blue the set the background changes a little bit but it's not this background that you see right here but we we have uh, some exciting uh individuals one is teddy ames uh he was uh, now a retired philly cop who's now he's been in movies he's been on commercials you probably heard him on cartoons so many different things we're gonna sample his his 
electrifying interview. He's a lot of fun to interview. Stand by. Here's his sample now. Cardio of the police officers countrywide, I would imagine. Uh, as far as the, the initial driving force, you just want to be helpful. Right. Um, you know, you see what goes on and, and you know, you see it in, in different realms. First, you see it on your block, then you see it in your community, then you see it in your city, and then you see it, you know, beyond that. And you think to yourself, if this is your calling, you think, you know, I, I'd like to be able to do something to kind of help stop this or help save that, whatever it is, that's right. your particular motivation. But in my particular case, it was just that I, I felt like I just wanted to be a better example than some of the interactions that I had. And I don't want to paint the picture that they were all bad because I ran into really, really good cops as a young, before I was on the job, mm-hmm. uh, as a young uh, teenager and, and, and in my early 20s. But of course, there was just like anything else, you know, there's good experiences and bad experiences. But I, my, my thought was, if I'm able to do this job, I'd like to do it in a fashion where people come away from the interaction with me somewhat positive, somewhat content mm-hmm. with, with the information they got or, you know, whatever the engagement entails. Right. First of all, I ain't going to let you sit here and get me in trouble talk about which one is my favorite. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm, that's all I'm going to say, I get it. <laughs> I love all of those projects equally. <laughs> so, yeah, you yeah. know, but... Oh, they really, truly, honestly, have all been, in their own way, so fulfilling. Mm-hmm. The short film, as much as the full feature films, um, the commercial work, as much as plays like they have all been, because I've been, again, just like, just like the police career, I've been blessed to just have been around some of the most phenomenal people. Because that's what makes it, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's about how good the core of people that you happen to found, find yourself surrounded by are that makes or breaks your experience and, and how things go for you and how long you stay in whatever occupation it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been blessed, man. I, you know, all of them have been great. We like to reward our own for such dedication and game-changing arrests. Gangs like these jeopardize the very fabric of the American dream. We absolutely cannot allow our citizens to work hard to make a living just to have it all swindled away from them. Sams, step up, sir. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce to you our esteemed Mayor Brown. Well, so there you have it. That's Teddy Ames right there. Teddy Ames, he, like I said, he's a retired Philly cop. Then I actually got to meet him in person. I got to drive down to King of Pressure during that movie that was just featured, Money Lovers. Uh, which he was in. He is a retired cop, but he's actually playing a, a, a lieutenant in the movie, and his acting skills are wonderful. I got to meet him face-to-face. Got to go down to the premiere and see the movie on the big screen. 
Uh, it was a lot of fun to do that. Uh, so make sure you check him out. Make sure you check his movies out. He's still around, out and about, and doing his thing. But ladies and gentlemen, we're still going to shift to another Philly sheriff um, who is fitness is his thing. He likes running. Uh, and he found a group while he was in Atlanta that, that do black men run. And he's been doing that since, I believe, 2015 or so. And he explains his story here. He talks about that. Uh, make sure that I got everything. I don't want to skip everything. Yes. Uh, George Morse right here jumping on right now. Run could be beneficial to uh, men who are coming in that are just novice, uh, recreational runners um, that are, uh, you know, just want to get out there and take care of their health, take control of their health uh, mentally and physically. Um, and just having that type of fellowship and brotherhood that you can connect with um, that can motivate you and inspire you to continue to push yourself. Even if you come, you know, you start walking by yourself and it gets to the point where you can even jog a mile and then work yourself up to jogging three miles and start joining up to the to the Black Men Run um, group runs that they hold in different cities across the nation. Um, and you'll see yourself one day registering for a race one day and you'll be like, wow, I can't believe I did a five mile run or I did a six mile run or eight to ten mile run. Um, it just helps uh, benefit you mentally and physically. Um, and that's what we're here for. Um, Black Men Run was formed. Um, our founders are in Atlanta. That's where our mother chapter is at. Uh, our founders are Jason Russell and Edward Walton. They saw a need for black men to be represented in the sport and in this space. Um, definitely to uh, defy the stereotypes as far as like uh, the diseases that are affecting uh, black men across this nation, such as heart disease, uh, cardiovascular disease and hypertension. So those are like our, um, our three uh, health issues that we're out here to counter and combat and eradicate for black men. Gotcha, gotcha. And I kind of cut you off a little bit. Uh, hold your medal up again and explain exactly what that is and how you got that. Okay, so this medal right here that I'm holding up, this was a uh, Black Men Runs National Meetup this year. It was the Detroit Free Press Marathon. Okay. Uh, this was hosted uh, in the second week of October, and I'm, I'm actually rocking out a swag shirt that came with that half marathon. That was our national meetup in Black Men Run. We host a national meetup every year, and it's in a different city across the United States. This year it was in Detroit. It was hosted by our, uh, our Black Men Run Detroit chapter and our SLT members. Um, they did a great job hosting us. I've never been to Detroit. This marathon was the Free Press Marathon and it took us out of the beautiful city of Detroit, Motown, and we took it into uh, Windsor, Canada. And we oh. ran over a bridge out of Detroit into Canada and came back in the sites and it was beautiful. It was a great experience. And I'm looking forward to next year. Uh, Black Men Run is going to be celebrating our 10th year. Black Men Run actually started in July of 2013. Uh, we'll be celebrating next fall our 10th year anniversary. And I think our 10th year anniversary location, destination uh, race is going to be in Atlanta. Uh, I don't have all the details yet, but when I get the details, I, I can share them with you. You can probably can share them on your platform if you want. Absolutely. I got you. So tell us how you got involved with Black Men Run. Uh, I got involved with Black Men Run uh, back in 2015. So there was a, a gentleman who was like a, a alumni from my school, who was mm -hmm. like someone who would come through and help me out sometimes. And uh, I remember I was in Atlanta for one mm -hmm. of my best friend's uh, bachelor, uh, bachelor uh, parties. And I saw a black man run. I was at a chicken and waffles. I saw a black man run. The guys from Philly, from my city, going to, <laughs> I think the race they was down in Atlanta for with the Publix. It was like in March, 2015. And I said, yo, when I get back to Philly, I'm gonna hook up with y'all brothers. Cause that right there was, that was it for me. I said, oh, they run out of town. I said, yo, when I get back, I'm gonna link up with y'all. That was in the March. When I came back to Philly, it was mid April. I showed up to a group run. And I remember telling the captain at that time, uh, yo, man, listen, I ain't never run more than three miles. 
I seen all these brothers out here running. I said, look, don't leave me. And I made it through the whole five mile group running. I remember Cap and the rest of the old heads that was out there said, hey, George, what did they say? What a young guy who said, don't leave. Man, like, you was up front the whole time. I was like, I was, I just worried about getting left. I ain't want to get left. So that was my experience. That right there, the, the brotherhood, nobody leaving nobody. And mm-hmm. I seen that, you know, doing something positive and powerful. I said, man, this is it. I'm sticking with this. And that's where I'm at now. So if some that's George Morris. Make sure you guys check him out. He's been on podcasts, uh, tearing it up right now. Uh, he's been on a few podcasts locally, uh, doing his thing, and he's uh, continuing to climb and getting his message out there. But we're going to transition and move on. Uh, if you, most of you guys remember uh, Brandon Griffith out there in Arizona on the West Coast, you know, he's had a very uh, traumatic slash inspiring story, and he continues to let his story inspire others and in seek uh, individuals who are law enforcement, first responder, or everyone to go seek medical, uh, um, get your, get checked up, get your heart checked up for different things. He explains so many different reasons why you can hit cardiac arrest or heart failure. So many, he, he's, he's the, the, the guy for that. He, he knows what's important, what's not. He can explain all that. And he's on a crusade and a mission to uh, bring awareness out there because he suffered, um, uh, almost a tragic story that actually turned him around uh, to get to be resilient and get his job back and educate. And I'm going to bring him to the stage now. Here's his video clip. Thought that I would drop dead from cardiac arrest. And, you know, I wish I could tell you that I was in a foot pursuit or doing something cool or, you know, on the football field getting hit. But yeah, I would like four out of five cases. I was in my home. I was in my den Hello. reading a book. My wife was on the computer. I put the book down. I said, "Hey, I'm going to take the dog out." I took two steps towards my door, and it was just. <laughs> you ever had you ever had someone jump out and scare you? You know, when your heart skips that beat, kind of like yeah. that fluttering. Imagine that happening, but you can't recover from it. It's this this weird flutter in your chest, and immediately I couldn't breathe. Even though I collapsed within about a second and a half, I experienced time distortion. Those that have been through critical stress incidents know what I'm talking about. It's everything slowed way down and I remember going something's not right and I remember bearing down and having my jugular veins start to distend my face started turning the darkest purple my wife had ever seen I'm trying to do combat breathing like we're taught to slow down my respirations but when you're in cardiac arrest there's no blood being pumped to your brain or anywhere else your lungs physically cannot expand with oxygen so I started convulsing and started doing agonal breathing trying to force myself to breathe so my wife turns around recognizes this is an emergency immediately calls 911 i fall back into my bookshelf breaking every tear on the way down she tries to she tries to brace me and catch me right my wife is about five foot three i'm six foot four so i i go right over her put my head through the wall i land on my hands and my knees and i'm looking out in my hallway and i'm starting to get tunnel vision but it's not like what you experience in the field when your adrenaline starts pumping and it's hard to focus on certain things there's a lot going on it's not like that it's this dark dark purple and i'm starting to see shapes and silhouettes and things are fluttering out on me right everything's closing in in that moment man i can't tell you the feeling of helplessness in that moment here i'm a cop i'm an emt i've saved i don't know how many lives i've done cpr i've done tourniquet application there is nothing I can do in this moment to save my own life. And that's oh. when I knew that I was I was a goner, man. And that's when I collapsed. Uh, I dropped dead to my floor right there. My wife rolled me on my back. 
she started doing CPR on me. She worked on me for four, four and a half minutes, and you know, wow. she wasn't she wasn't getting the depth she wanted. And she's she's a true genius. I mean, she put my feet up on the couch, so all the oxygen had blood on my legs would go down on my core. I can't get ER docs to think like that. The fact that she had that presence of mind in that moment still blows me away. But she worked on me for about four, four and a half minutes. The first responder was obviously a cop. She had to stop what she's doing, go open the door, let him in. This officer was not equipped with an AED like most departments around our country, but he jumped on my chest and did an amazing job. He gave it everything he had. He worked on me until fire and EMS got there around the nine, nine and a half minute mark. Uh, they go into my den. They had to get more room to work on me, so they dragged my body in the living room where they had more room to work. You know, they're IO drilling me, they're dropping OPAs in my mouth, they're doing all this stuff. I was dead for like 16 minutes and 48 seconds before they wow. finally got were they able to resuscitate me wow. and when i was brought back man that pain is something that i it's, it's it's hard to describe to those who haven't been through it you know your arms and your legs when you fall asleep on me get those pins and needles feeling imagine that times a thousand like it just wow. it hurts everywhere my chest had been compressed in i got stress fractures there's blood in my mouth and when they put the opa and i could taste that you know when you're when you get tased you have that metallic taste in your mouth yeah. and yeah. that those weird tingles afterwards but the worst of it was my head man i just i'm every, with every single heartbeat i'm getting these white flashes in my head it feels like someone's taking a sledgehammer to the top of my head and at that moment i sat up i started pushing the firefighters off me uh my wife grabbed me by the face and told me you know don't leave me i said i won't before i collapsed backwards in that moment from that moment on i don't remember anything for the almost nothing for the next five days because my brain was you know, recovering from oxygen deprivation. But I do remember feeling the sway of the gurney and I could hear the firefighters walking on the rocks in my front yard. I mean, according to the crew, they said I was in good spirits. I was in the back of the ambulance calling hose draggers and having a good old time. So uh, I'm still friends with the guys this day, but they take me to the hospital and they start running all these tests on me and I am in and out of consciousness. I'm waking up, my wife's there. I got some guys from my squad and I'm passing back out. And they're telling me I died and came back. I'm passing back out. They're running every test possible and they're looking at my heart, cardiac MRIs and stress tests. I mean, they broke my blood down to chromosomic levels looking for genetic mutations and there was no diagnosis. Nothing wrong with my heart, healthier than a horse. And that's where that's when I started realizing the magnitude of what cardiac arrest is, how many young people die every day, young athletic males being at the highest risk. Yeah. And for me, they had no diagnosis for it. It was like, hey, you know, from the from the time you're in the womb to the day you die, your whole sends electrical impulses. It takes one electrical misfire for you to drop dead, just like a brain aneurysm or something else. It can yeah. happen in a literal heartbeat. So now I'm 26 years old. I lost my spot on my SWAT team. Overnight, I don't know if I have a job. It's, I got labeled as damaged goods. It's like, hey, we can't have this cop out here with a defibrillator. Obviously, my command staff didn't know anything about cardiac arrest. They all thought I had a heart attack or something. <laughs> and I, I had to explain there's differences in all of this. And now that I have this device implanted in my chest and I'm on medication, I'm safer than any other cop out there. Mm. First responders are at a 70% higher risk of heart disease in the general population. And we are 25 times more likely to die from heart disease than a violent encounter with a suspect. You know, we got 20 year less life expectancy than the people we serve. So I, I now had to fight to keep my job. You know, I, I had to fight and go toe to toe with the governing board. We had to go to risk management. Thank God, Chief Mark Mann had my back. He, he refused to let them cast me aside. And I brought in state medical director and researchers and I fought to go back. And as far as I know, I'm one of the only cops, if not the only cop to return to full active duty with an implanted defibrillator in my chest. And I 
such an amazing story, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Make sure you guys check that out. Make sure you check his website out, Griffith Blue Heart, for more information. If you're looking for uh, defibrillators, if you're looking for, I'm sorry, not defibrillators, AEDs for your uh, office AEDs for the car, or just more education. He puts on trainings. Uh, he has scenarios on the website. Make sure you guys check that out. It's very, very important, very, very educational. We're going to move on to Dr. Kareem Paranda now. Uh, some of you may remember his electrifying story as well. You know, he wrote a book. Um, it describes his upbringing in New York, how very um, uh, trauma-filled that it was. Uh, then he became a police officer to do the right thing. And then later, as you hear in the story, he gets indicted for a use of force incident, which um, it was a very hard ordeal. Uh, for him to have to go through and then he transitioned to a counselor a first responder counselor and that's what he does now uh make sure you guys check him out but we're going to hear part of his story now his uh, interview was a lot of fun as well i'm working with two other individuals that were uh one has since passed on uh but he wanted to be known as a, a for lack of a better term uh, a, a kicker you know a blankety blank kicker that's that's very celebrated and admired i'm pretty sure he wanted to do his job well and, and effectively uh but working in with those individuals uh I, I in your book you you explain how you get called to a certain nightclub in the area which it, it turns out to be rowdy uh i can't remember if you may have known the person from dealing with them beforehand or dealt with them that night but things got a little uh aggressively physical that night in the club where um, they've taken him into custody. Of course, uh, the, I think what punches or things were thrown uh, and then getting him into custody and come to find out however long after that, uh, you're being served with papers on um, on uh, being basically arrested for, um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, uh, abuse or something on the job or something like that. Can you explain that a little bit? I know I'm probably chopping it up. No, 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 you good. Yeah, I know exactly. So, so what happened was, uh, it's kind of interesting because this is why the, the situation in Memphis was so triggering to me. Because right. that summer, it was 2009, I, those same guys you were talking about and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, several other officers were assigned to a zero tolerance task force okay. that was trying to get ahead of the crime uh, sprees that usually uptick in the summertime. And so um, it was in that season and it was in that summertime season that uh, I had several uses of forces that throughout that 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 assignment mm -hmm. and uh, use of forces to the point where people went to the hospital nobody i never killed anyone but right. people ended up going to the hospital to get some medical attention mm -hmm. and uh this incident that you're speaking about was an extra duty assignment that those two officers called me in said hey man we need you we need you up here because man we got these gangs from this time that time that time they're all gonna be in one spot and man we need we need people up here that can handle business I said, man, something told me not to go, I promise. But I said, you know, I was like, these are my boys. We on a SWAT team together. I said, you know what, I'm gonna go. And I went and the night was cool. Mm -hmm. Until like you know, 20 minutes left in the, in the party, fight breaks out. Chairs flying, bottles busting. I mean, it was it was madness in there. And, you know, we did our best to, to you know, break it up. But then there were people that were drunk and they wanted to swing on us. And attack us and then you know there was one guy that i had to take care of and then um his brother which was a really big heavy set guy was the other one that was um interfering with the arrest and then when i tried to arrest him you know in the streets you know you get this kind of like premonition where when people it's like you know when people look off and then punch you it's like one of those kind of premonitions that i got that he was like finagling or trying to trying to trying to create and so i tried to get him before he got me and then we got into a tussle 
and um he ended up getting arrested for resistance obstruct delay because he was delaying our ability to arrest his brother and and, and it was just pandemonium right. that wasn't an issue that situation wasn't an issue it brought attention but it wasn't the issue but the issue was when the um sbi and fbi came in several of the officers on the force mentioned to the sbi and the fbi hey you might want to look at these other use of forces he got involved in earlier in the summertime too they weren't even there for that but because so many people so many of these other officers kept saying stuff um it created now an investigation to all these other use of forces that i ever been involved in, in my entire career That's now true. the other thing was uh from a political standpoint i don't know you know and i don't care either but I was on the cusp of becoming sergeant. I was getting ready to get promoted or, or, or my time was coming for promotion. And I believe that it was the effort of those who did not want to be supervised by somebody like me that mm -hmm. they threw me under the bus in that way. That's so it. after about, you know, I was on uh, administrative leave from August of 2009 until March of 2010. Mm -hmm. That's when I decided to resign. They offered me a severance package and I left. And I was still mm -hmm. under investigation. So my theory was, well, if I leave, well, you know, surely they'll throw this thing out or they'll, you know, it'll right. be no deal. Now, after two years, 2012, I was unemployable. Yo, I couldn't find a job in law enforcement. Um, and I couldn't find a job at like Food Line or some uh, local supermarket or a gas station even. Uh, I, I was there. Nobody would hire me. Yep. So I was overqualified uh, for those jobs and I was under investigation for the uh, law enforcement gig. So no no agency would hire me at this time. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about depression. Yeah. Oh, man, you talk about feeling low. And mm -hmm. my last two boys, they were born. And so I was a stay-at-home dad for those two years. Which okay. was because, you know, I, I, I definitely developed a strong appreciation for womanhood in that time period, man. Changing diapers and, and feeding them and whatnot while my wife went back to work. In 2012, around Christmas time, I get a knock at the door. It's uh -huh. the agent and the state agent who were investigating my case, and they had the indictment papers, and mm -hmm. they brought two indictments against me for using excessive force while under the color of law for two right. incidents that were unrelated to the club incident. Okay. And, and around that time also is when all the lawsuits came. All the lawsuits came at one time. It's like, oh, this guy's got caught for uh, using excessive force again. So then people started coming for, yeah, he did me too. He used it on me too. Yeah, me too. And then everybody lined up and then they did all the use of forces roughly around the same time. Yeah, his story is amazing. And I cut it off right before he goes on and explains how uh, the trial goes on his experiences as he gets walked out or uh, out of the apartment or walked into the courthouse and things like that. Make sure you check him out, all right? Make sure you check his book out. Most of the uh, interviewees that I have on here have written their own books or they're on uh, Audible. And I highlight them, uh, I, I proudly highlight them because it's not an easy feat to do this job. It's not easy to write a book. And it's not easy to share those experiences. So I help put those, uh, give them the platform to get their information out there and give them the, uh, their experiences, the respect that it's due. Moving on to uh, LAPD, got John Poltz. He wrote his own book, uh, Negotiating Like Lives Are On The Line. I read his book as well, and he discussed some of the, his encounters with mental illness. And he, not only does he discuss mental illnesses, he talks about patrol. And he also did his research. He found a story about me uh, from the past. So I'm going to let his clip play now. Huge, huge homeless problem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are suffering from uh, 
really bad mental illness and they're self-medicating with things like fentanyl and methamphetamine yeah. and unfortunately there's there's just so many people and they're not getting the help they need fast enough and what they do is you know they end up turning to criminal acts mm -hmm. and when they turn to, to criminal acts unfortunately the police are is who deal with them and our law enforcement officers today i don't believe are fully prepared to deal with mental illness at the rate that they do one of the things i always like to tell people is law enforcement's a little bit backwards as far as a profession on the fact that when we bring our newest people in we put them in patrol right and mm -hmm. patrol in my opinion is the hardest job because you never know what you're going to run into you never know when it's going to happen and oftentimes we have the youngest people doing that we try to pair them up with some with some mentorship mm -hmm. and some experienced individuals but that only lasts for a short amount of time mm -hmm. then before you know it like in in the LAPD we got like two 25 year old kids like running out there together and they're trying to solve the world's problems yeah. and they don't have the life experience they don't have the training they don't have the background i mean they're trained as best as they can be but mm -hmm. there's something to be said for time experience and getting the outside training you need yeah and and a lot of times these guys are doing the best they can with the training they have and uh it doesn't always go as smooth as it as it mm -hmm. can right on the incident you're talking about with ruby uh that was her name okay. myself and my partner off solara ralph we we ended up helping her out and i mentioned at the end of the chapter that it was fortunate that the two of us were able to respond to that call when we did because we did have experience we've dealt with multiple multiple uh, uh, mental illness type individuals and we were calm we were patient and able to work through the problem without hurting her and uh, it reminds me of a situation you were involved in right there's a great news story about a car accident you came upon about a, a young teenager by the name of dana and, and his mother mm -hmm. and for listeners who may not be aware, you know, autism can really cause emotional outbursts in, in people who suffer, you know, with the illness. And once they're taken out of their regular routine, sometimes they can react and they can react violently. Mm -hmm. And looking at the news footage, there are three things that stood out to me, Klee, was one, the right officer arrived on that scene at the right time, which was yourself. Um, you. Two, Dana was a, was a teenager, almost a grown man at the time, and unexperienced officers who pulled up on the scene might have seen someone that looked like a, a young grown man to them who's in a, a state of emotional shock right and they may not know how to deal with that he may be lashing out violently he may be yelling he may be screaming and if for our listeners who don't know you know you dealt with that situation you calmed dana down you got everyone through it with no incident mm -hmm. and the mom actually you know made a big deal of it went to the the news media went to your department, talked about how great you handled that situation. But the biggest thing that stands out to me is when they interview you, you said you reflected back to a training class you had in the academy, right? And I think we were talking, it might have been as long as, you know, a decade or more uh, previously, right? And that's that, a long time. Go ahead, sir. I'm sorry. No, I was saying, a, yeah, at that time, it, would have, it was about a decade prior back then, yes. Right. And that's a, a long time to go without that sort of training or at least an update with the stuff that's happening right now because mental illness is huge. You look at the pandemic, now we're going into financial crisis, mm -hmm. uh, the regular stresses of the world with crime going up. Yeah. There's a lot on people's plate and they are going to react in 
sometimes violent ways when they mentally break down and we have to be able to recognize it and stay patient and, and listen to what they're telling us. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, I did not pay him to tell that story. In fact, he caught me off guard with that story because I did not even knew, know that he knew. I didn't know it was still floating out there, to be honest with you. But uh, I, yes, it's a true story. Yep. And thank you. For, uh, and um, yeah, yep. And that's the interview with John Poltz. And make sure you guys check his book out. It's very entertaining and exciting and educational, like I say about everyone. But right now, we're going to pause for the calls because Sergeant B. Safe is going to come to the stage. Stand by. Your Honor, we have undeniable evidence that Chance Wilder attempted to hack into multiple bank accounts and steal money we request the maximum penalty. That's right, Your Honor. Chance Wilder is a menace to society, and we must put an end to his hacking shenanigans. Junction, Your Honor. My client is innocent until proven guilty. We believe there's been a misunderstanding. Chance Wilder is a misunderstood genius, not a criminal. Order in the court. Let's hear the defense's case. Your Honor, I present to you Chance Wilder's latest creation, the Hacker Helper 3000. This incredible software was designed to protect innocent people from cyber threats. Chance's intentions were pure. Objection, Your Honor. This is just a ploy to distract us from the real issues at hand. Indeed, Your Honor. We even have evidence of Chance Wilder's hacking attempts. He's gone so far to have left the digital signature saying, catch me if you can. Chance Wilder, I've heard both sides of the story. Hacking is illegal. Since you like to take wild chances, I sentence you to community service where you use your skills for good, helping organizations protect themselves from cyber threats. Oh man, no money and community service? Shut up and take the deal. Well, there's another good job done by our district attorney, just in case. It was a team effort. And there you go, folks. Justice was brought to Chance Wilder, but I'm pretty sure he'll be up to his shenanigans again. So tune in, and that's your tip of the day to get you on your way. we're back i hope you guys enjoyed that brief commercial with certain be safe you know he likes to get that information out there look out for the children's book coming i can't tell you when soon but certain be safe children's book it will be coming down the pipeline now these next set of guests uh these were very interesting these were very powerfully dynamic not that the others weren't but this is when black and blue made another pivot and transition and then uh instead of me reaching out uh individuals started reaching out to me sending me uh copies of their books or telling me their stories this next story is uh, we didn't even have enough time to finish everything. And I know he's been on many, many podcasts explaining his story, and he's been uh, in and out of jail uh, explaining his story on corruption. Uh, he talks about how he was set up, how he always wanted to do the right thing, how he always spoke up about the right thing. And I'm going to bring Raymond Hicks 
and he wrote his book i'm still standing so make sure you guys check that out that story is dynamic and it's powerful but here's this clip to be honest with you um one of the court appointed attorney and enticed what enticed me he said man on the manuscript write down everything that happened because this could possibly be a bestseller book maybe a movie you know and wow. he took me he, yeah he took me back to court and got off my case so i took his advice and i just began to just start writing some things down and that's what formulated the um the title of the book i'm still standing by raymond hicks yeah 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 so why don't can you tell us a little bit about how all things got started i know um well, I don't want to give too much away. It's your story, and plus, I'll, I'll probably chop it up. Uh, but how did you start being investigated on? Well, first of all, you know, I started working out in the jail. You know, I was a highly decorated officer. I was a Gold Cross recipient, Civil Cross recipient, two-time deputy of the month. And um, a lot of my friends that I grew up with here in Fort Lauderdale, you know, they used to come in and out the system. So one of the guys, his name is Gaston Akins. We call him G Fresh. You know, he had a shootout with the former sheriff, um, Scott Israel. When, when Scott was just a regular patrolman for the um, city of Fort Lauderdale. And I said, gee, what are you doing, man? I said, every time you turn around, man, you, you're constantly in and out the system. What about your wife and kids, man? You know, I said, the recidivism rate is continuously growing by a vast number. You know, you got to change your life around, man. And um, make a long story short, he was one of the ones that I've inspired. And you're going to learn later that he actually became my boss. But in a way, um, I began to speak out against corruption within my department, you know, okay. where they were planting drugs and beating young black offenders to the ground and taking money from them. They also had a pyramid scheme where there was 200 some employees and, and um, involved in this pyramid scheme where each person would bring a thousand dollars to the pot, which is punishable up on the, um, I forget what what statute it, it was, but it's mm -hmm. punishable up on the five years in Florida State Prison and a $5,000 uh -huh. fine. A lot of men and women out of Miami, um, was actually arrested for the same thing that some of these people at the Broward Sheriff Office were doing. And when I began to speak out against everything that I saw, they, they came after me, especially when I was working with Drug Task Force, OCD, and the Cradle. Within a thousand, thousand feet of the school, three years in state penitentiary. Wow. And that's where, and that's where my, my, my dilemma began. But I should have just stayed in the jail. I actually, um, let me just back up for a second. When I left okay. the jail, um, they started pulling me out of the jail in 1990 and they had mm -hmm. a sting operation so they use a lot of us from detention to go out and pose as undercover sellers if you was from the street like i am you know and you knew the street lingo you know like we go to different areas we're like hey my nigga i got them parlays what's happening man you know and of course we making different transactions with these individuals and whatnot and um we've also had like informants mm -hmm. you know where they, we were sending informant to certain particular locations Yep. And that informant was a paid informant. And on the on the drugs that they, we were giving them, on the Ziploc package, it had a serial number and the money was marked. So we were sending informant into the location. That person would go in and make the transaction and come back and give us the, uh, the intel about uh -huh. who either he or she that they made contact with. And we would move in and take they'll put these people in the custody. So when the commander would give us the rocks to sell, you know, um, I watched some of my colleagues you know, again, plant drugs, take money, beat young black offenders to the ground. And I just told him that it was morally wrong and totally unethical. And I was not going to engage in indulging that practice. And I said, listen, they was keeping the money, Mr. Tillman. I'm saying to myself, at the end of the night, everything has to be tallied up. All the drugs and the money has to go in the manila folder with the red tape says evidence. Mm -hmm. 
But these people was keeping the money. And I said, I said, you guys are no different than the people that we just arrested. Yeah. And they told me, they told me, you need to mind your own business. I said, what do you mean, mind my business? You know, so to be honest with you, um, I would have never thought in a million years, man, that I would go through what I'm what I'm about to explain to you uh, tonight, sir. In right. reference to what my department subjected to me, uh, me and my family to. And right. of course, I just spoke out against the things that I saw that was wrong. They say when you see something, you say something. According mm -hmm. to the policy, I don't have it in front of me right now, but the policy says that if you see something going on, you know, within the department that's not right, you need to bring it to your sergeant's attention. Right. And that's what I did. I brought it to the sergeant's attention, the lieutenant, and up to the captain. But these people told me to mind my business. Next thing you know, you know, um, they searched my car without probable cause or a search warrant, mm -hmm. realizing that I must have been selling drugs. And when I when my brother called me, you know, he said, man, y'all know who this is. This is my brother car. He worked for the sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. So I went to the location where he was. I called communication and I asked him to have the sergeant fit this um, at my 1020 to meet me at my location. Mm -hmm. And um, the sergeant never showed up. So I called the lieutenant and told him about it. And next thing you know, he says, wait, wait um, when you get a chance, go to internal affairs um, and file a complaint, which is what I did. Uh-huh. And next okay. thing you know, you know, all hell broke out, man, you know? Okay. But I... Yeah, that was a, a very intense story, and it uh, it goes on and on. And I suggest you guys um, take up, learn about him, learn about his struggle, learn about the incidents that he went through. He went through a huge ordeal for a long, long time, and I still think he's going through the residual of it. Um, he's been on many different platforms. He's been on many different podcasts as well, explaining his story, and his fight still goes on. So interesting to follow up with him and seeing what's current with him and seeing if things are moving forward for the positive or negative. So we'll be hopefully be back in contact with Mr. Raymond Hicks. Uh, we're going to move forward to uh, that was he was in Florida, by the way. Uh, we're moving on to back to Arizona with uh, Matthew Thomas. Read his book as well. Um, he uh, has done uh, wonderful things um, being uh fighting the cartels and, and how things were done uh, during his time when he was uh, the, in the war on the war on drugs, for lack of a better term. Um, but he comes to the stage, actually, and he's going to talk about his burning desire on how he was brought up in a way where he actually didn't think he was going to be a police officer. He actually uh, saw police officers in his neighborhood and interacted with them. And uh, he talks about how, although it touches on marriages, how most marriages uh, don't survive an entire career here as a first responder in law enforcement, but his is standing the test of time and kudos to him. Here's his story. So I had, I had a little bit of a different experience, right? So I grew up in a pretty rough area um, and uh, I was exposed to law enforcement early on uh, and not in a positive way. They came into our neighborhood, primarily the gang cops who rolled into our neighborhood and that's the exposure I had to cops. But uh, the gang cops were really cool, man. Like they, they would come in and uh, we kind of knew our rules. We knew their rules and uh, we just dealt with each other, but they were always cool. They would just come up, talk to us, uh, you know, just kind of BS with us, sometimes even just hang out with us. Uh -huh. uh, so that was my exposure to law enforcement. And then uh, as I got into my teens, I was always drawn to like military stuff, right? And, and uh, then having a grandfather that was a World War II vet, really drawn to military or, or some type of service. Um, and as I got into my late teens in high school and stuff, I felt a, a definite desire to serve. And so I thought the military was gonna be my route. 
But then as I got out of high school at a very young age, my now wife, who was my then girlfriend, were both 19 years old. And uh, I find myself on the uh, verge of having a child because uh, she, she was pregnant and uh, we had to figure it out, right? And so, quite honestly, one of the things that was motivating me was that um, I was about to have a kid. I had to get something stable, something steady, uh, something that would pay the bills, something that would have insurance. And uh, so it was military or this. And at 20 years old, I got my first call to come to work here at Pinal County and kind of been here since, man. Gotcha. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that story. You know, I mean, yeah. having a baby at a young age just put a light under and put a fire under you so and get you yep. to move. I know that I was uh, in the military. I had my oldest son um, I had when I was 21. So, I mean, when I, I was in, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then when when the, the call came saying, yeah, I'm pregnant and we're going to move forward. I'm like, yeah, time to make that move. Yeah, my mom told me, you know, when I when I told my mom at 19 years old, mom, you know, my girlfriend's pregnant and, and uh, we're going to have a baby. Uh, she said, well, you have, you know, there's two choices and I'm hoping you're going to make the right, right one. One is to run away from that situation and one is to dig your heels in and just take it on. And, uh, you know, I was never a runaway kind of guy. So uh, we went at it. And I'll tell you what, I've been super lucky. Anybody that's in this career a long time knows that uh, a wife that starts a career with you isn't always a wife that finishes a career with you. And right. uh, I've, I've been blessed to have a wife that is just a warrior and she's put up with a lot of crap for me over the years and, and has blessed me by staying with me this long. <laughs> And believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, that's at least from my experience and the things that I've seen, that's very rare. So to find yeah. that I'm in the rough like that, that a gym like that is something special. So I know the two are a hot commodity and, and things are going, you guys are going to make it all true and true. Happy to hear. Yes, absolutely. Kudos to him. And moving on to emotional intelligence with uh, Randy Moody in Aurora, Colorado. Uh, it was a lot of fun to interview. Uh, he came on with a different and dynamic perspective. Um, here's his story now. Or, or you're just through the court of public opinion, you're just demonized. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, back during Ferguson, it was the concern you were just going to be all over YouTube. Uh, yeah. and, and now with the, these reform bills, uh, we're seeing more and more officers indicted. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty that need to be uh, if they're acting inappropriate. But uh, there are plenty out there trying to do the right thing and trying to do their job and make a mistake, uh, human performance factors, right? I think we do a poor job in this country of helping society in America understand human performance and dynamics. Uh, our society is very forgiving of pro athletes trying yes. to perform and making mistakes. And I see this example used, this metaphor that you go out there and, and pro athletes, you know, obviously those aren't life and death situations, but officers are going out and everybody thinks officers are trained to this magnificent expertise level they're not you need more more hours of training as a hairstylist in the state of colorado than you do to be law enforcement wow. and, and, and even though we train more than the state requires that that's kind of mind-blowing that that's what priorities are so I've, I've said iacp and perf i think and challenge those organizations to do more to get out there and and, and let the world know what it, human these physiological responses these human performance errors that occur and uh, if we don't get in front of that, we're going to see more and more of, of, of officers being indicted for making failures when they're trying to do the right thing. Right. Right. 
and I'm gonna uh, jump right in. When I started doing emotional intelligence and you start hearing about that from law enforcement, uh, it's kind of the new catchphrase, but I, I think it's so crucial. I think for some cops, it's, oh, I don't, I'm not gonna talk about my emotions. It's the yeah. same thing with wellness, right? I, oh, I, I just rub some dirt on it and move on. It's not, it's not really about that at all. Uh, you know, your emotions manifest themselves in physiological responses to your body, neuromuscular, uh, you know, cardiovascular, uh, the chemicals that are released and all of these kinds of things can do damage to your body. So mm -hmm. I think it's important uh, from a wellness standpoint that we teach emotional intelligence. Uh, we've all seen the studies, uh, law enforcement officers, we diet, uh, younger ages, uh, heart disease, higher suicides through the roof. Uh, and we need to give our folks the skills uh, to, to be able to, to navigate that stuff. So uh, the, the definition, and I, I talked a little bit about um, TalentSmart and, and their book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. That research is based on Daniel Goleman. So I was introduced to Daniel Goleman a few years ago. I uh, kind of considered the godfather of emotional intelligence. Came out, I think, in 1995 and created the, um, the discussed the four core emotional intelligence skills uh, across two competences. So you have the personal competence uh, that is the self-awareness and then the self-management of that. And then the social competence of social awareness and relationship management. And then what you'll find in that book uh, is the definition. I'm gonna read it right here because I don't wanna mess it up. Your ability to recognize and understand emotions and your skill at using this awareness to manage yourself and your relationships with others. And there it is. Yep, Randall Moody. His interview was great. I had a lot of fun. He talks about emotional intelligence and the books that he highlighted there. And you know, if you see it, starting to see a pattern, I tried to hit uh, uh, up north. Uh, East, Southwest, Midwest, different uh, different areas of the country here uh, with law enforcement and first responder. And so last but definitely not least, one of our latest videos, uh, we're going to Seattle, Seattle, uh, Washington with Police Chief Daryl Lowe. And he talks about his police department, of course, and recruitment and how his police department's hiring and the difficulties it is um, for looking to get into law enforcement. Uh, it's a challenge. Make sure if you're trying to get your foot wet in law enforcement, for lack of a better term, <laughs> but if you're trying to get into this field, make sure you research the department that you're trying to get into because not every person is fit for each department. And he explains that. Here's his clip. A ratio, and, and that's happened very organically. Uh, for those in, in the business of tracking, uh, there is the uh, 30 for 30 initiative, um, and, and we are you know, uh, approaching that number um, like I said, uh, fairly organically. Uh, we do have um, uh, females both in our uh, executive uh, command ranks. Uh, we have supervisors, uh, but we, we are uh, a medium-sized department. I have, uh, uh, I'm authorized 88 uh, commissioned uh, police officers. Uh, I currently have 79 uh, officers and I've run about that same 10% uh, uh, vacancy rate for the time that I've been here. Uh, but, you know, through some very deliberative uh, uh, recruitment efforts on our part, uh, we've actually hired uh, 21 people a year to date between uh, commissioned officers and support staff. But my attrition rate every year is six to seven people. So even though I've hired a, a sufficient number, I still lost, you know, six uh, you know, individuals. And, and, and it's an ebb and, you know, it's an uh, ebb and flow, uh, you know, type of process. Uh, and then the other part is just uh, having a uh, department that is uh, desirable for people to come to because they, they are supported. Uh, we have tremendous community support. That's and funny. then our demographics from a city perspective is not your, uh, I'll say your uh, typical white, black, Hispanic. 
Uh, we have a lot of um, uh, Southeast Asian uh, population, a lot of uh, uh, Indian population. Um, and so our, our diversity uh, is would be different than others to truly reflect our community. And the, the challenge from a recruitment perspective there is uh, for some of these other uh, uh, cultures, uh, law enforcement is not a desired profession. And again, we are in the tech uh, area, uh, uh, both between, uh, like I said, the tech companies that exist, uh, but we also have a tremendous uh, space um, uh, industry here. So we have a lot of uh, very uh, highly technical, highly specialized employment. And those are are the jobs that some of uh, some of the cultures and demographics that we have here in Redmond they tend to gravitate towards, and that is more valued in their culture. So you're, you're fighting against uh, something that's uh, you know hardwired, deeply embedded, cultural, and 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 money and those types of things, yeah. uh, especially from the public sector, uh, cannot uh, compete against that. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. I did not know that. I, um, I'm being here on. Um, East Coast itself, not knowing uh, it, it's heavy on the tech, heavy in space culture. So that itself would be difficult because you have a different genre uh, of folks that are in that area for work purposes, living in that area. Uh, to So it would be difficult to recruit when you, people are living in that area or moving to that area specifically for something totally different than actually being a first responder. Right. And we also, you know, have to, you know, acknowledge or recognize too that uh, the individuals that come here, you know, from uh, other countries, uh, law enforcement is viewed uh, very differently, and it's even, um, I don't say constructed differently, but it, it's operated differently because a lot of times it's a, it's an offshoot of the military, offshoot of the government, and then there may, you know, maybe issues of, you know, human rights or corruption or different things. So the, those. Those uh, variables also factor into, you know, uh, I'll say making inroads, uh, you know, into those communities. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Good points. All good points, ladies and gentlemen. And there you have it, folks, right there. So, uh, you know, recap, uh, going through the, the process, the pivots, the changes through black and blue. You see the background differences. You see the different guests from all over the nation. You had you uh, outside the country as well. I uh, didn't get a chance to highlight them. You know, I can't highlight everybody in one clip, but there will be future highlights coming. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Again, like I said, we will be interviewing uh, Ernie, Ernie Stevens uh, this upcoming week. We had to fill this gap in with this. I wanted to, I've been wanting to do something like this for a while. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys still remember the interview, the great people that we've had on the show. You guys check them out, see how they're flourishing now since uh, their interview since the show. Uh, Black and Blue airs weekly at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And again, we're going to continue to do so. We air and we interview law enforcement and first responders, whether they're rookie season or retirees, and we discuss their trainings, their experiences, and their publications. And we don't fail to do so. We bring all that information to the forefront. I enjoy bringing this information to the forefront. We got a doubleheader next week. Like I said, we go visit and meet Michael Laidler, and we're going to interview him as well. So we got many things coming down the pipeline. Thank you guys for tuning in. I'm your host, Coach Klee, your motivator speaker, your empowerment coach, your author, your favorite baker's favorite baker, saying 10-4 over and out. <gasps> Ooh, look at all the pretty butterflies in the sky. I guess I'll just cross the street here. Oh, good. 
lights green. I'm glad I can go. Oh my gosh, watch out. Start to be safe. Be small, baby. Megan, watch out for that car. I got gotcha. you. <gasps> oh, geez. I didn't even see that car coming. Oh my gosh, are you two okay? Yes, we're okay. Megan, you have to do a better job paying attention. I just wanted to cross the street. I didn't see you walking there. Megan, you just can't cross in the middle of the street. You have to go to the intersections and use the proper crosswalks. Wait for traffic to clear and then go. If you don't follow these simple directions, you could get a ticket for jaywalking or worse, be hit by a car and seriously injured. I'll be more careful from now on. Ooh, look at the other butterfly. Oh my goodness. Sergeant B. Safe, you are the best. This is very true, thank you very much. I did have to turn on supersonic beast mode to jump and get Megan out of the way. Remember folks, look both ways before crossing the street and wait till the intersection's clear and cross at the crosswalks. And that's your tip of the day to get you on your way.